of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 425. Jason Linger is with me, as is Wayne McCroy. There's never been a poor episode with Wayne, so I expect this one will be up to the level we always produce with Wayne. We're going to be covering the sun. Uh, Wayne has written the notes for this, and he titled it The Threefold Sun, The Mystery of Golgotha and the Ether. If you don't know what Golgotha means, you might want to look that up right now. As a matter of fact, as you read your Bible, which is about the only place I can think of where you'll see that word, words have meaning. The problem is, is that those words that we're reading have been translated more times than we could possibly know, to the point where proving the language of the New Testament, the original language, is a thing. Look what the Reverend Robert Robert Taylor had to say about it. Look what the Vatican has to say about it. Oh, well, it was originally written in Greek, but we lost that original document, but here's a perfect copy that we made. And round and round and round we go. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And good morning. Welcome, Wayne. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to be back here. All right, we're going to try to keep it on a back and forth here. Most of the associated research has linked in with what I've been doing. So we're going to go through the first point here, and I'm going to point out some things for people who would like to look and try to know more. Go ahead. I assume we're going to verbatim these out, right? In order to better understand the alchemical process in man, we will need to examine the alchemical processes of the sun. As above, so below. Here's the thing. In the modern era, our world has been cut up into a puzzle, thrown out on the table, and shuffled around. And people know how I feel about the sky clock and the zodiac, and some agree, some don't. But from my point of view, we're not even given the right leads when we get into trying to know something of the sky clock. In this part of the world, or in most of the world, you're going to hear names like Kepler, and you're going to hear names like Copernicus. Well, I got news for everyone. Kepler was Tycho Brahe's whipping boy, and he ended up stealing Tycho Brahe's work, and Copernicus is a whole other story. Tycho Brahe went back to the Ptolemaic way of looking at the sky clock, and he made the tools. He recognized the error in the tools and spent endless time refining the tools to get rid of the error. As far as I know, he was the first man who recognized there was a refraction error, which he also calculated out. His lackey was Kepler. Kepler ends up stealing his stuff, then having to give it back, but ends up walking away with his Mars calculations. And Kepler, as far as I know, ends up getting all Brahe's instruments, which he didn't even know how to use. Here's the kick in the caboose. Kepler and Copernicus were not observational astronomers. As a matter of fact, Kepler at one point, when his stuff's being published out, says, you know, this is all theoretical. In short, what I'm telling you is Brahe, Tycho Brahe, in my view, is the real deal. He did firsthand observation. He, it, just read about the man. Go, go get some of the, the biographies, biographies and accounts on him. But here's the thing. Tycho Brahe gives the so-called solar system map the way that I had accepted it before I recently went back to study Brahe. One more word. The elements. We don't look at them in the way they used to be looked at, probably as far back in the era of Tycho Brahe. Here's how it used to be viewed, at least in some parts of the world. The old description of Earth was anything that was solid. Water, anything that was liquid. This included if you had a solid metal and melted it, it was then viewed as water. 
Anything gaseous was air. But here's the big difference. Fire was special. Fire was the beginning point for all elements, and it permeated all elements. And it is different simply because the other elements, when we interact with them, this is the the simplest I know how to put it. You would use touch, right? You touch water, there's resistance. You touch something solid. But with fire, there's not just that outer understanding. There is an inner understanding with fire. I think it's important to get all that on the table because so many things in our time, you know, we think we're reading the right thing. But as we go back, we realize they looked at it in a different way. What do you think, Wayne? Uh, I think the important distinction here to make with fire is, uh, and I've seen uh, some uh, different writings describe it in this way, fire has two aspects to it that the other elements don't seem to, okay? And this is, first of all, when you see fire, you're perceiving light or radiance given from the fire. But there's another thing that's associated with the fire, and this is the, the hidden part, right? This is the underlying part, and it's heat. It radiates heat. Uh, So this is an important thing. There's a distinction between fire and the flame. The flame would be the light. The fire would be the heat, the the combustive uh, process of it. Uh, So this is kind of a twofold kind of a thing uh, when you're looking at it from the elemental form. So as you said, there's this underlying uh, portion of fire uh, that's inherent in everything. And and this is kind of what it equates to. This is the hidden world, so to say, Uh, the world of, um, how should we say? causes, right? The causal world, the causal influence and things. Uh, So this equates a lot of times to like spirit or, you know, ethereal uh, things underlying what the physical element might be. Uh, So that's the association that needs to be made with fire. Uh, There's those two distinctions with it when you're looking at it from philosophical terms. Uh, So, you know, I would say by and large, our way of viewing the world is much different uh, than the alchemists of old. And uh, when you understand uh, this part of what we would call the hidden world around us, uh, the fact that this this fire underlies or undergirds everything, uh, all processes, then you could better understand because there's hidden processes that go on that we don't see uh, with our five senses or we don't perceive with our five senses here in the physical. There's something that happens before things manifest here in that physical type way. And that's what this fire process describes. And that's what makes it different uh, than some of the other ones and makes it more special in a way uh, or harder to understand in, you know, certain aspects here. But uh, by and large, our modern day thought processes are much different than how the alchemists of old and all the, uh, you know, people that were initiated into these types of teachings, they thought very differently. And we need to kind of recapture that type of uh, thought process here to better understand what's going on. And I think we'll have a better idea as to how the world truly operates when we could, uh, you know, see it from that perspective rather than looking at it in the gross scientific materialist way that we've been taught here in the modern era. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a caveat we have to put out there for people. Be prepared to think outside the box when we're looking at a lot of this stuff, because uh, much of the cosmology and everything that we have Uh, today in our modern world is misdescribed to us. And we've lost these older ways of thinking that uh, actually line up more with the natural world or the natural process of things than what our modern thought would have us think. Uh, So that's that's the viewpoint I come at this with. You have to kind of step away and separate the philosophical from what we would term the strictly scientific viewpoint of today or the scientism viewpoint, which is probably the better way to put it. 
uh, because we've you know been largely taught to accept this this strictly material description of things. And this steps beyond that. It steps into uh, realms like the ethereal realm or or different ideas like this that are hard for somebody to perceive uh, on the surface narrative of things here with our modern teachings. So uh, you know when we're we're talking about this stuff, there's an underlying aspect to this that we need to understand and come to grips with. And uh, by and large, the public mind set today is not prepared to deal with that because we've been taught, we've been steered into this materialist viewpoint. And a lot of what we're discussing here today actually comes from the works of Rudolf Steiner and uh, you know some associates uh, of his. Uh, and a lot of the inspiration I got from this was an article I found in a publication called The Golden blade, which uh, is, you know, one of Steiner's organization's uh, big things that they published for many, many years uh, for their Waldorf Waldorf school training. So, uh, you know, I found this in the 1969 edition of that, and I started uh, having to do further research from this, this one simple article. And uh, just some of the information I came across was really enlightening in a certain way. Uh, like it, it really connected some dots for me. And that's why I figured we could put this uh, you know, presentation here today, the way that it is. So we could understand uh, what did Steiner know? What was he trying to tell people? And uh, more importantly, what did these ancient peoples understand about certain things that we don't today? And when we look at it from this perspective, we could have a better understanding of how cause and effect in this world work. Uh, so, you know, and we could see the time that we're living in uh, reflected in things going on in the sun and the sky. Uh, so that's why it's important to look at these things from uh, these different vantage points. And, you know, I would say that uh, the, the concept of the classical elements is key to a lot of the components of this, because if you're thinking in strict terms of like our, uh, what do they call the, the, you know, periodic table of elements and stuff like that, that's a totally different ballgame from how the alchemists viewed elements. Uh, so, you know, when we go back to this more classical thought, we have a better view overall of the big picture, uh, whereas with our modern science, it just convolutes things and makes it complicated and hard for people's minds to comprehend. Uh, so this simpler viewpoint of the alchemists actually is more all-encompassing. Eric Dollard knew the truth. Light cannot be seen. And people are going to say, what? What you talking about? Back in the day, this was commonly known. When you look at the sun, you are not seeing light. What you're seeing is it's been described as a flaming, burning. It's been described in all these ways, but Dollard also pointed out the truth. What you see is the light emanating from the source hitting material, matter. That's what you see. No matter, you can't see the light. And that starts to bring into question so many things. And by the way, if you go back to the old good stuff um, that People like Brahi almost certainly knew uh, the holy rishis of India had put together ideas about elementals that were supposedly previously known in the pre-Atlantean or the Atlantean period. So in the post-Atlantean period, as it's often described, the holy rishis were able to say things like every fact or everything you see happen in the world comes from a spiritual reality that is fact. That's We view it the other way around. Here's the thing. The Rishis would say things like elementals make this world go around. And we've already talked about the elements. Well, the elementals are tied to the elements and they ensure that nature will proceed as it is dictated by the creator. The idea is that the elements love fire and then they get slaved out. 
into other forms, the air, the water, they're, they're slave, they're enchanted is often the word you hear see. So there's all that on the table. Wayne and I are going to try to give it back and forth a little more quickly because we got a lot to get through. Go ahead, Jason. In the modern era, we have lost enormous amounts of contextual information about the nature of the sun, and therefore, according to the principle of correspondence, we have likewise lost massive amounts of contextual information about our own nature. To make matters worse, uh, many religious traditions have taught you that if you respect the sun, you're a pagan or you're somehow a sinner. The light of this world that allows everything to grow. And what's worse is the science clubs, the scientism clubs are saying things like, oh, we've got three satellites all the way around the sun. We can see every side of the sun. I mean, it goes on and on, Wayne. Yeah, it certainly does. But the important context here to remember is uh, the whole as above, so below principle. So if there's things that when we look in the sky at the sun that we're not seeing, that we're recognized by, you know, uh, cultures of old, uh, we're missing a lot of context, especially as it pertains to the spiritual nature of things. And, and that's the bottom line here. So if we're looking at the sun and we see nothing but this massive gassy ball in the sky, this flaming, ma- flaming massive ball in the sky, and we view it as little more than that, we're missing a whole lot in, you know, a view of the spiritual side of things. So that's the important thing to keep in mind. So if, uh, as above, so below, if we're missing the context in regards to the sun, we're missing the context in regard to ourselves. That's the key point here. All right. I'm just going to throw this out because I think a lot of people should try it. Here's what I do. I go out every day to pray. And I include the luminaries and I include all what I consider to be hierarchical realms of spirituality. And what I, one of the prayers I say daily is I claim the right that the creator has granted me the divine spark, free will, and he's made me beneficiary of this creation. And in that I demand that those who spray poisons into the air or cover the light of the sun cease and desist immediately. I started this weeks and weeks ago. I see the spraying, but I no longer see it over the sun. Is this coincidence? I don't know. Maybe thousands of us can try it and see what it could. It be so simple. Anyhow, we got to keep trugging here, Jason, or we're never going to make it. We will examine what the ancient mystery traditions taught about the sun in ages past. But first, we will begin with what our modern context of the sun reveals. Our modern contextual description of the sun, according to science, is that the sun is a massive ball of swirling explosive gases that gives off light and heat in a mysterious process of fusion. We can see only the surface of the sun and its various features. We know little to nothing about what the sun's interior is like, and correspondingly, we likewise know little to nothing about the interior of the Earth. It seems likely that despite what modern science claims, the sun is electromagnetic in nature. That's what I accept to be true. I am a person like Tycho Brahe, but don't think I'm trying to make myself equal. I'm not even close. I'm a moron compared to Tycho Brahe. (laughs) That's a fact. Those people had a lot more going on upstairs than we do in this era. Uh, I went out and I observed. And I found what I called the sun we don't see. What am I looking at there? Is that the source sun on the other side of the firmament? Is that some kind of reflection in the firmament? What is it? It's there. But Steiner also went and redefined another thing I found that I misinterpreted if Steiner is correct. I would be watching a full moon and filming it. I would go a third of the sky roughly east 
of the moon and with full spectrum tools, there's a bright spot. What I thought I was probably looking at was the light of the moon's reflection off the inside of the firmament. What Brahe says, or what Steiner said, is that that is evidence of source sun or something like that. It's not exactly clear, but I could see it that way. Wayne, what are you going to add? I would just add that uh, by and large, when we look at the sun and we're just viewing it uh, from this perspective, that it's just this big burning ball of gas in the sky. We're, we're missing a lot of the context here. And some of the ancients had uh, various different views on this. And what we're actually uh, looking at is way different than what's described to us. And I would say that uh, by and large, this whole place operates under the electromagnetic principles. Uh, there's this is the the force that uh, underlies everything in one way, shape, or form. Even uh, what people would call "quote unquote" gravity, this is a form of uh, electromagnetism of sorts, in my view. And this is just uh, one of the conclusions I've come to uh, when I, I look at all this stuff. It's just a, a different modality of the same thing. Uh, so the, this one underlying force is. Uh, what makes this world operate, right? So, uh, and this this is derived from somewhere different than in the physical here. This is derived in a, uh, what could be described by phys- physicists as counter space, uh, but what we would call the spiritual realm, right? So uh, there's a hidden source sun out there uh, that uh, gives, I, I guess, what's the best way to describe this? That uh, the the sun that we see is more of a reflection of this source sun than anything else. It's it's just a uh, powered an, by a, right. It's powered by, and it's kind of an illusory type of a. a, a I don't know the words to describe it. When we start talking about stuff like this, we we lack the words or terms to describe it properly. Uh, but you know, we see this physical representation of the sun, which is just a a, a type of a projection of the spiritual sun, so to say. I think that's the best way to describe it. There's a thing we should throw out, you know, all the people who realize our realm is not spinning through space, they want a map. Problem is, is we're all wearing diapers. We're going to have to get back to it or get fortunate and get records that are reliable from long ago. The map of our so-called solar system that I accept has been described by Steiner. I didn't know until recently that Brahe, Tycho Brahe, gave us almost a verbatim version. The first time I ran into the idea was maybe 20 years ago with a slight difference. Here's how it goes. There are two epicenters to what we call the solar system. I do not accept the rock and dirt orbit idea. I, Each interval, which would be called an orbit by science, like an orbit of the moon or whatever, to me, that is a spiritual hierarchy. Now, I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to get into the map. The first part of what I'm going to describe, Earth is at the center. From the Earth to the moon, from the moon to what I'm going to do this in the order that I think is correct, from the moon to Mercury, from Mercury to Venus, from Venus to the sun, that whole conglomeration of spiritual orbits, if you want to call it that, centers on Earth. Beyond that, everything I'm going to describe centers on the sun, from sun to the Mars, or from the sun to Mars, from Mars to Jupiter, from Jupiter to Saturn, ancient Saturn, and then beyond that, things like cherubim, seraphim, and the star field. That's the model that I accept. And I'll say it again. It is claimed in the older documents. It is claimed in Steiner's work. It is claimed in a couple other places that we have had 
what we call Mercury and Venus shuffle. We say backwards what they used to mean. And here's my problem. I'm so used to Venus being the brightest thing in the sky, but it occurred to me, how much work have we done to cover Mercury and the idea of Mercury in our world, how key it is, Mercury the messenger. Does it make sense for Mercury to be the brightest thing in the sky or does it make sense for Venus? Go look at the mythical descriptions. Go look at everything we can get on them. Anyhow, at the end of the day, what we call Venus, according to what I have studied and older ideas, is actually Mercury, that they were flipped. And in a world where the puzzle pieces have been shuffled on the table, not only do I accept it, I think it's quite likely, and I got to be more brief here. Sorry, guys. That's fine. That's probably one of the big keys to everything, though. So it was important to get that on the table, because uh, if we're looking at Venus and Mercury being inverted or flipped back and forth, well, doesn't that uh, kind of, if, if you do that, then that shuffles all the other puzzle pieces out of place and makes it uh, almost impossible to get back aligned to what uh, the, the true cosmology is. So that might be an important key here. And I think that was important to put on the table. It's like the division of the zodiacal constellations. If they've been moved, you can never hit the bullseye. You might get benefits, but I'm just saying, go ahead, Jason, we, we got to move here. There is no spiritual association or context to the sun in the modern era. This was not always the case. Much information was lost with the rise of Rome and or the Vatican. What was lost in the early Christian era with the Romanization of the mystery traditions? Oh, the sacred Latin college and your editors and rewriters. Um, go read the worship of Augustus Caesar and you'll find evidence after evidence of the scrubbing of things to do with the sky clock, the calendar, how things work, probably to get a man who wanted to be a god because Caesar wasn't enough for him. Uh, into the position of time that he needed to be. But to be brief, I'm going to hand it right to you, Wayne. Yeah. Uh, when we go back, all roads always lead to Rome. And that's that's just the general fact of the modern era we're in. Uh, and that being the case, uh, when Rome came to power and they started uh, taking older things like the Greek myths and stuff like that, well, they put their own spin and twist on these things. And they uh, kind of censored out certain information that didn't fit their agenda and put it forward in a new Romanized version. And in so doing, we lost a lot of crucial information, uh, especially as it pertains to myth and uh, you know description of how the world actually operates. And, and this went on to a lesser degree with older cultures too. Like the Greeks lost some information from uh, the Egyptian and Chaldeans. And uh, the Egyptians and Chaldeans, I'm sure, certainly lost a lot of information that was available in the Atlantean epoch. So uh, that being the case, through the course of time, we've lost more and more of this information. But uh, the critical point is the rise of the Roman Empire here, or the Vatican, because the Vatican, let's be blunt about it, is nothing more than the uh, carryover of the Roman Empire, right? They transform themselves into uh, this, this dynamic uh, force in, in this world by merging with the church, right? So th this was an ecclesiastical type of a relationship between the Roman government and uh, the early Christian church, which they kind of uh, took a hold of. They, they gathered onto this growing and burgeoning movement, and they inculcated it into a new form of governance, right? They, they processed it through a type of alchemical wedding of sorts and transformed uh, the role of governance in society in a certain way. So they, they took a hold of all the Roman ideas, the Roman governmental ideas, and they brought it forward into the church body and were able to spread out throughout the world and pretty much conquer the world with it. 
Uh, so that's what had happened there. And in so doing, what they did is they censored a lot of this old information uh, to keep it out of the uh, the minds of the masses so that they could have better control over the people and their behaviors. So that's essentially what's happened. And we lose information through time in various ways, like through different cultures in these contexts based upon what their agendas are. And it's no different for Rome. In fact, it was kind of amplified with Rome. So that's where a lot of information was truly lost in the modern era. What is information lost about? It's about dumbing down. I have mentors and people I know that were educated much differently than anyone I've ever known. And if there was a place called the Library of Alexandria uh, and it burned down, why? Well, look what we can see. We have demonstrated that in the modern era, it's been about dumbing down to the point where I do my best to educate myself. And when I read about people like Tycho Brahe, I'm almost a drooling idiot in comparison. And I'm not even being facetious. Anyhow, Jason? The Romans inherited much of their knowledge from the Greeks, who also lost some contextual information about the sun from earlier traditions. What did the Greeks know and teach in their mystery traditions about the sun? And what portion of this did the Romans lose? The Greeks understood a spiritual context associated with the sun and actually identified this as a separate entity from the physical sun. They differentiated these two suns as Helios, the physical sun, and Theos, the spiritual sun. This information was lost by the Romans and the public knowledge base, but continued to be taught in secret within certain secret society groups birthed from the mystery schools of the era. If you go back to the episodes we did on the sun you don't see, what I'm calling the sun you don't see, you will see this very exact eye in the idea in the episode images. But Wayne, we're a half an hour in and we're only on the seventh bullet. We got to burn it out here. Yeah, we we definitely have to uh, be a little more brief with our our thoughts on this. But uh, definitely you could see the Greeks, they classically taught Helios and Theos, the two separate suns. Right. And if we go back and look at the the work that was done here on episode 150, we get a little bit more into the context of that. Uh, But that was the case. That's what the Greeks retained from older cultures was the the context of a spiritual sun and a physical sun. Uh, And this was brought forward through various uh, secret society groups that were birthed out of those mystery schools of that Greek era. Uh, So, you know, that's that's about it for that point. We should move on to the next part. Consider the the so-called map of the solar system. So everything out to the sun centers on Earth. Everything out, all those other luminaries center on the sun. It's almost like the sun is lensing in the spiritual influences that come from the creation that is above our head. Hint, hint. The idea of the spiritual or source sun being differentiated from the physical sun is a very important concept. This idea is likewise acknowledged in earlier traditions dating back to the early Egyptian and Chaldean mythos. But these earlier traditions acknowledged something different than the Greek tradition, something of incredible importance that was lost to the Greeks. You know, even in our era, go look at all the Masonic woodcuts. Almost always so many of them showing an outside energy source, spiritual source coming out of frame through the clouds, down to the sun we see, down to the moon that we know about. Um, And I've talked to so many people that I was in the Marine Corps with that were Masons. They don't know a thing about what that means, either that or they're refusing to talk about it, whichever is the case. But if these things have legs, which I'm saying they do, pretty important, right, Wayne? 
Oh, definitely. And I would suspect by and large, most of the Freemasons or, you know, people in these groups, they don't have the first clue as to what this really is or represents. No. And, and that's the bottom line here. It's, it's in the iconography that's been handed down to us through these different mystery school traditions and through the secret society groups. But the vast majority don't have the first clue as to what this represents. And this is an important idea and concept because we do see this on the Masonic woodcuts. There's always this third object represented in the sky there. And uh, it's of utmost importance and people just overlook that fact. Uh, in the lower levels of Freemasonry and these other groups, they don't understand what it's supposed to represent or, you know, or they have a, a misconception as to what it's supposed to represent. But uh, we'll get a little more into that now as we move forward here. Well, it's, it's pretty simple. It's just that people have been taught by the men in black that now they're becoming pagan and sinners. And what is this world about? This world is upside down and backwards. You see a thing and it's up, you can almost be certain it's actually down. What's going on here is the older descriptions had a physical view of the sun. There it is. I see it there. But there was a spiritual view, theos, of the sun. Why? Why? They just making stuff up so they can feel better in the morning? I don't think so. What was this notion recognized by earlier traditions? In order to explore this idea, we will have to look back at the original advent of Zarathustra, or Zoroaster. It is said that Zarathustra and many of the adepts who followed after him in that early period were able to see something in the sun that we do not see today. What were they able to see when gazing into the sun? I will make another statement that I've covered a few times. It, what I suspect is correct, with no way probably to ever prove it in my life unless I become clairvoyant at some point, is that we lost, literally lost, our spiritual vision right around the onset of what we call the Renaissance. I'm going to ballpark it 11, 1200s. Somewhere around there, it seems spiritual, literal spiritual vision was lost. Wayne? And from the things I've researched, that seems to be the correct observation to myself. At some point in the ancient past, man had this ability to see into spiritual realms, uh, at least men who were initiated into some of these orders, uh, or ha who have actually studied this stuff when they were watching the sky. They were able to gaze into these more spiritual realms. And this is something that's been lost. And according to some of the traditions, like the Rosicrucian traditions and stuff like this, this was an ability man had in the mid-Atlantean epoch. Uh, but during that mid-Atlantean epoch is when mankind slowly began to lose this extra spiritual sight that he had and lost touch with the spiritual realm and became more addicted, so to say, to the material realm and more uh, bound into materiality, so to say, with his senses and stuff like that. Uh, so this came to a, a slow creep and came to a, a halt sometime just prior to uh, what we would call the Renaissance period, uh, where uh, many of these older adepts were allegedly still able to see with this spiritual sight. Uh, and this is something that's lost. And this could be equated to what we would call the ethereal realm today, right? The etheric, the etheric plane, uh, because it's described in many of these works from the mystery schools. The etheric plane is like a subplane of the material plane here. It doesn't exist separately. It's here, but it's what uh, Steiner would call part of the super sensible world. And we lost a lot of these super sensible abilities into the spiritual realm of things. And that being the case, this is what uh, the Zarathustrans were observing back in that era. They were able to see into the spiritual when they looked into the sun 
or when they looked in the sky, they were able to perceive these spiritual things. And so they described them. And I would say there's probably something to this because like you alluded to, Crow, why would they do this? To feel better about themselves when they woke up in the morning? It doesn't add up. They were describing something they literally saw and perceived there in the reality. And they understood cause and effect in this world better as a result of that than we do today. So uh, we, we don't get the descriptions of elemental beings. We don't get the description of probably even the elements without the idea of, of spiritual sight. But here's, here's the kicker. Ladles and jelly spoons, welcome to the age of hypermateriality. Call it science, if you like. The guys that we follow, that our science books are going to put in front of us are Kepler and Copernicus in terms of the sky clock. Uh, magical Copernicus put everything around the sun and magic, magical Kepler never looked at the, the sky except when he was with Brahe, but he didn't even know how to use his instruments that he inherited later. The point is, how is it that we have mathematical calculations from men who did not observe what was there? How far from spiritual vision could that be? I would ask. And another underscore, when we get to the Renaissance, these dudes are knocking off statues uh, from an older time, they can't even make them as well as they were once made, but the idea is lost. What does the three fates mean? What does this stack? Doesn't matter. This guy named Michelangelo made this one. He's a rock star. Welcome to the age of hypermateriality. And what you sacrificed is because going down that road is the antithesis of spiritual concerns. Jason? These early adepts had somehow been able to reconnect with spiritual sight and were purported to have been able to see the activity of the inhabitants of the interior of the sun sphere and likewise the figure of the divinity within it, the Christ figure. So I, I could go into each spiritual realm and what has been associated, the, the common, what I think the associations that has a commonality, but let's just ask a question here. When we go back to Renaissance art or all the old church art, are angels just some made-up thing? Um, in, in the Bible, references in that direction, is it just some made-up thing or is there a basis to say the word angel, to say the word archangel? Is there a basis? I would suggest to you that there is, and that relates directly to spiritual vision. Wayne? I would agree with that context as well because... Uh... Why would you come up with a term to describe something that doesn't exist in some way, shape, or form? And why would you differentiate between, well, this is an angel and this is an archangel, see? Uh, and this is a divinity and this is a power and this, this is a cherubim and this is a seraphim. Why would you come up with all these different terms for something that does not exist, right? So I would say there's, there's likely something that was being observed by mankind uh, that they did their best to record in different ways. And this is uh, the division of nature, right? They, they observed nature, the natural order, how things worked, and they came up with classification systems for this. Uh, so, you know, uh, this kind of thing was recorded, and I would say it was recorded for a reason, not for the sake of, uh, you know, upholding some fiction or something like that, but as a better way to describe how our world works. Uh, they were able to observe these different spiritual forces at work and uh, they differentiated them in different ways and tried to come up with descriptive terms to describe each one because they had different aspects to them. And we've lost so much of this information today that it's, it's almost hard to wrap your head around at this point. You know, to ask the simple question, everybody listening, uh, we're standing on a thing that's been called Earth. Is it alive? Is it conscious? 
never needs a battery, does what it does, will always do what it does for me. Yes, both of those are answered with yes. So when I look up into the creation we call the heavens, what can be said of that? Is that alive? But here's the kicker. The first time I ever looked at just a random star in the sky, probably one of the brighter ones on any given night, defocused it with my telescope. Lo and behold, the cymatic patterns emerged. They look like they're underwater. But what it tells you is what we have been told is incorrect. And so we better keep pushing, Jason. It was pretty much universally recognized by initiates of the various mysteries and the secret priestcraft of the time that the Christ or Christos existed externally outside in the cosmos, as evidenced by his appearance in the solar disk, as observed by the masters of the Zarathustra era. Zarathustra referred to the Christ as the Great Aura, or Ahura Mazda. This tradition continued to be the accepted norm within the secret schools right up until the fulfillment of the mystery of Golgotha. I don't think I've read any modern secrets, well, not modern. In the modern era, I have read no old accounts, many of them dumped in the last part of the 1800s, some of them much earlier, where the idea of the mystery of Golgotha is not a big deal. For people who don't know, that's lifted from the New Testament. For people who don't know, it's the idea that somebody finally reached the highest resonation that had ever been achieved in this place called Christ consciousness. Another way of saying that was before Christ consciousness was achieved, there was no freeway to the 33rd degree, as it's often been encoded, to the highest resonance the highest vibration currently open to someone who wants to try uh, called Christ consciousness. And that's how I would put it. And this is a commonality across almost everything I've read to include the Bible. Yeah, that, that's the whole thing here. Uh, this whole mystery of Golgotha thing has been overlooked for the longest time. And a lot of this actually likely disappeared in the mid 1800s with the advent and the rise of different secret society groups uh, that have taken some of these older teachings twisted and convoluted them to suit their own agendas and put this forward into the greater culture. Uh, so when you look back at some of these occult writings and stuff, it's very difficult to get uh, to a time period with this stuff before the, the mid 1800s, uh, because much of what we have today in that context in these occult writings is from that time period and from those small groups of people that formed things like the Theosophical Society and uh, you know the, the Golden Dawn and all of these different organizations that arose from that. But when you go back and you find the earlier writings, you find some vast differences from what it is that they're describing or what it is that their cosmology is that they're putting forward. And lost to most of them is this whole mystery of Golgotha idea. It seems absent from their literature in a large degree. And uh, I, I say this is one of the most important things that we could come to understand. Uh, so all of this stuff we're talking about directly relates to that today. So that, that's kind of one of the contexts we have to keep in mind as we move forward here. But I don't want to uh, babble on too long about, uh, you know, a certain point here because we still got a lot to cover. Well, what, we, we better lay it down. I mean, are we talking, are, are we using the definition of Golgotha as the place of the skull, Wayne? That, that would be what uh, most uh, theologians and Bible scholars translated as the place of the skull. And uh, that's, that's what Golgotha has largely come to be understood as. So this is a direct correlation from the heavens, so to say, to man himself, okay? The place of the skull. Where's the place of the skull? Well, the seat of the skull 
is essentially uh, what you would call your third eye, right? The pineal gland. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've seen some mystical context as far as this goes as a descriptive thing as far as that is as well. When you look at the, the physiology of man and apply these different old mystery school contexts to it, uh, you come across the same thing. So this is describing something other than a physical place, whereas in, in the Bible, uh, it may be a physical place. There is a, a place that exists that they did acknowledge as being Golgotha or the the uh, the hill of the skull. I guess the, the hill is claimed to look like a human skull, and that's how it was allegedly named in the biblical context. But this relates to something deeper, and that's the whole point here. There's a spiritual significance to it as well. Well, isn't it interesting that everyone reads the Bible has a skull? I wonder if there's any correspondence there, Wayne. And by the way, all these so-called secret societies and other places that are claiming they're holding on to information for its safekeeping, I can't think of a single one of them that is not holding the Bible in their right hand as they're saying whatever they're saying. And Jason, I think we can skip 13 and go to the following paragraph. In the context of time, the Zarathustrans understood a threefold sun, the Greeks understood a double sun, and the Romanization of the world lost all this context and acknowledged only the physical sun. The Zarathustrans, and it is likewise said the earlier Atlanteans, were able to perceive not only the hidden spiritual sun, but they were also capable of perceiving the actions of the spiritual inhabitants of the physical sun's interior as a reflection of the activities of the hierarchy of the spiritual sun and understood that these energies could be drawn down to bring about correspondences here on earth. Zarathustra knew, and it was his initiation that enabled him to have the knowledge that in that place in the heavens whither our eyes are turned when we look at the sun lives a great and all-embracing spirit. He did not at first see the physical sun at all. In the place in the heavens where we today with our ordinary consciousness see the physical sun, Zarathustra beheld a great and omnipresent cosmic spirit. And this cosmic spirit influenced him in a spiritual way, whereby he was able to know that with the sunshine, with the rays that fall from the sun upon the earth, come also spiritual rays, rays of divine spiritual grace and bounty, which enkindle in the soul and spirit of man that higher man to which the ordinary man in us must continually aspire. You know, it's always the most obvious things that you walk by a thousand times in a lifetime that end up being the important things. The sun is one of these things. Is the earth alive? If it is, what allows it to be alive? Well, the main thing is the sun. Without the sun, we are not having forests. We are not having, I mean, what can we have without the sun? And so as we go in and the things Jason and I have covered, we have shown the literal dumbing down. Go back to Rome before the equestrian class. Well, we've got a temple to Jupiter. We've got a temple to Saturn. We're recognizing these spiritual hierarchies, which are later going to get called gods to throw all the people listening to the men in black into a whole disarray of disinformation. And that's going to go away. Pretty soon, it's going to be just worshiping the sun. And pretty soon, that's going to be stuffed under the Vatican in a place, and all of it's going to move upstairs, and a year later, it's going to be against the law to worship the sun. See how it was done? Where we started with temples to everything was full spectrum. Think of a rainbow. 
There are seven colors typically shown in a rainbow. There were seven luminaries. And as they begin to knock the luminaries out to get just to the sun, you are knocking colors out of the rainbow, which are representative of the reality, both physical and spiritual. You can see how this was done. Wayne? And then that very symbol has been hijacked by uh, the cult of death that runs things here in this place now and has been totally misconstrued to represent things other than what the true spiritual connotation of it was. A reflection of the natural world, let's be clear here. Right, absolutely. Uh, so uh, when, when we look at uh, you know, some of what was said here, I mean, there's a huge amount of information here, but uh, by and large, what older mankind, the older cultures of mankind understood was that this hierarchy of cause and effect, so to say, if you want to be you know, uh, neutral about it, existed right? That came down from these spiritual realms through these different rays. And that the sun had more aspects to it than just, hey, look at this physical sun here. It it gives off light and heat. There was more to it. There was a spiritual context with it that men inherently understood because you know without the sun, and, and this even our modern science can't deny, without the sun, there's no life, right? Well, there's there's a mystery that undergirds all of this that is not explained in the true material physical sciences here in this modern era. They can't describe or, or you know, uh, accurately depict how does this work? How does this impart life to things? They don't know because they're missing the spiritual context. And this is where we lose a lot of the information because uh, earlier man had more of this spiritual con- context to it. So they understood, hey, the, the, the rays from the sun, this is what's projecting life into this place, right? And it wasn't just this physical thing. Okay, it gives off light, it gives off heat. It's, you know, explosive gases, boom, combustion, that kind of thing, like our modern material science would explain it. There's more to it than that. And that's something that's been lost uh, through the ages here. Before we proceed to connect the necessary dots to the mystery of Golgotha, we first need to add some important contextual information so we can have a better understanding of key concepts. And that's a lot to unpack here. All right, we're going to have to burn through these quicker, but how many times have you seen things related to very old writings, the idea that we're quarantined here? Well, if there's a firmament, in some way, that's correct, right? If we cannot leave our atmosphere, then in fact, we're in a fishbowl. Remember Operation Fishbowl? Makes you wonder. Here's my point. If all that's correct, we're sequestered in darkness. The only thing that deigns to give us light for what is it, eight to 12 hours a day, something like that, depending on the time of year, is the sun. Without that, we are sequestered in darkness. The moon would kick in a little. The stars would kick in a little. Wayne? Yeah, that's the bottom line here. So, uh, you know, we need the sun, even on the most basic level here, in order to have any kind of understanding of where it is we live. And uh, there's so much information layered into that, especially in the spiritual context of things, that it's an important thing to really gaze skyward and and wonder about all of this. But uh, by and large, we've been distracted as a people, and we've been dumbed down to think in the strictly material terms, and we've been bound in the material here. So uh, that being the case, uh, we depend upon our five senses to understand things, and we've lost that spiritual sight, so to say. But that's something that I think Uh, with uh, the changeover of ages here that we've been experiencing. I think that's something that's coming back, right? This whole spirit, this whole way to to view the spiritual side of things, to understand, to regain some of this spiritual sense. 
And this is something that, uh, in my view, some of the controllers of this world are trying to diminish or keep quelled down in mankind as a whole. They don't want us to reachieve this spiritual sight and have a better understanding of where it is we live and who exactly we are. Uh, and they want to do this for their own personal agendas. Uh, that's probably about all I got to say about that. Almost like, no, not almost like, exactly like you have to prove you're a human being right now and excuse the labels I place. People know what I mean, whether they like the actual term or not. I just don't have any better ones to throw in. Consider chapter one of Dune. I think it's chapter one. A young prince is brought in by a Benny Jesuit witch. That's an interesting name. Almost Jesuit, right? Genders change. Anyhow, let's keep moving. Brought in by a Jesuit witch, told to put his hand in a box that's going to make it feel like his hand's being burned off while a needle is put to his neck. It's called, wait for it, the gum jab, jabar. This is a one-to-one -one pre echo. And what the prince is told is a human being has reason. And I just told you, if you pull your hand out of that box because you think it's burning to a nub, I'm going to kill you because you're nothing more than an animal. If you leave your hand in the box and use human reason, in spite of the excruciating pain, you have proved yourself a human being and you will not be given the shot and you will not be put down as an animal. Has there ever been a more blatant one-to-one -one what's going on now? It is almost as if as the age changes, if you can't prove your worth as a living man or a living woman, bad things may happen. For the man of today, the sun has become a glowing ball of gas, pouring down warmth from the sky, much as a stove radiates heat. The sun, the last that has remained, is the Luciferic sun, in which beings who have lagged behind in their evolution, whether they are high or low, hold sway. The Threefold Sun, Elizabeth Vreed from the 1969 edition of The Golden Blade. What really happens in science? This, Araman, describes Lucifer. Rudolf Steiner, to paraphrase essentially, Araman, the representation of the materialist viewpoint, attempts to describe Lucifer, the representation of the spiritual viewpoint, so this causes confusion because the spiritual cannot effectively be described with strictly objective physical measures. Well, welcome to the modern age of materialism, ladles and jelly spoons. When I was, I don't know, 16, 17 and stoned all the time, we used to play a little game. We would turn on the television, we'd put on a comedy album, and we'd smoke about 150 bongs, ex exaggeration, and we would put on the, the album and watch the TV start to sync with the ideas and we would laugh our heads off. But that's not the important part of the story. This comedy album opens by telling you the truth. Everything you know is wrong. Dogs flew spaceships and he choked to death on a piece of cheese. There is as much common sense in that opening comedy album all those years ago when I was abusing my mind that relates to the world around us. Everything we know is wrong. So who is telling the truth? Who is right? And that's where we, we exist now. And it is my point of view that this age change is a proving point. For those who can't come along to whatever's next, you're not going to come along. And that's going to be driven by the choices and the decisions you make. For those who can, they're going to have to put up with what the young Prince of Treaties did. Feels like my damn hand is being burned to a nub, but I know I have to take it and make it through to the other side. In other words, Tom Petty, there ain't no easy way out. 
You see where we're going here, Wayne? Yeah, absolutely. This is a perfectly described in the Bible, too. This is the separation of the wheat and the tares. That's exactly how it's described in the Bible. It, we're living in the season of harvest. Let's put it that way, as far as uh, where we are in the cycle of nature here. It's harvest time, and the separation of the wheat and the tares is, in my view, what's what's going on here. So uh, what, what do you do with the tares? Well, the wheat uh, will be utilized and become something greater, but the tares will be burned away. And that's the bottom line here as far as, uh, you know, uh, the cycle of time here and how this esoteric description of things goes. Uh, so it's that time of harvest right now where the wheat and the tares are being separated. So it's going on simultaneously here, right? Uh, whereas a lot of people would view this uh, spiritual ascendancy, so to say, or, you know, the, the direction the world's going in. I, I don't know the best way to describe this. The direction the world's going in, they're expecting one solution or another to happen, right? They're expecting, okay, either we're going to turn things around and things are going to go for the good and we're going to uh, be able to elevate ourselves and realize our full potentiality as human beings. Or the other side of the coin is the world's going to descend into this transhumanist uh, uh, death cult type of uh, a mentality of this uh, whole uh, dystopian future. And people are viewing this as it's going to go one way or the other. What if it's both simultaneously and the outcome depends upon what you do in your personal situation with your journey? And I think that's what's going on here. The separation of the wheat, the wheat and the tares. So you're either going to be the wheat or you're going to be the tear and you get to choose. And that's the thing that's, uh, you know, really been convoluted here is the choice has been uh, by and large hidden from us by the power structure because they want to make that decision for us. They don't want us to make that decision ourselves. Uh, and, and that's the key here. So it's kind of like, are you a human being or are you an animal? Like as described in that whole uh, allegory you gave of Dune there, it's the same basic thing going on. So uh, we're we're living through this time simultaneously, and where we go is a personal choice, and how we proceed is a personal choice that we all need to make, because if you don't make that choice, somebody else will make it for you. All right, Wayne, can you tell people where they can find you and your work? I'm guessing you will log in and try to put that information into the first comment under the episode. Yeah, I could be found over on rockfin, R-O-K-F-I-N.com backslash Wayne McCroy. Uh, the Alchemical Tech Revolution is available in podcast form on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, also, I have a YouTube channel, Alchemical Tech Revolution. I could be reached on Files from the Conspiratorium on Facebook, or people could just reach out to me uh, via email to alchemicaltechrevolution at gmail.com. And I also have uh, several books out there available through Amazon and pretty much anywhere else you could buy books at this point. And I'm working on a new one now that I hope to have out by the end of the year. So uh, people could look forward to that. Thanks again, gentlemen, for having me on. It's always a pleasure. All right. So we're not going to have time to push forward now or one, but what I'm going to add is we just got to a point where the Steiner idea of the Araman has been introduced. Luciferic. Well, everybody listening, Steiner's full of, you know what, isn't he? he isn't it? This is a bridge too far. What was Steiner smoking? Well, Let's take a little closer look. From my point of view, the Araman, this idea that's being expressed, has had many names. It's the subconscious. It's the id. And how is it that id is actually ID? 
the root of how the living man and living woman are abused through the intercession of the id. I mean, the ID. What about the ego? The other, the enemy? It's had so many names that we have lost track that it even matters, is what Steiner laying down here and many others, by the way, matter. Well, for the pleasure of your viewing, I will introduce two things that come at it from a different way. I think it was, people are going to say that it's not, it's the German film. The silent German film is the first high budget sci-fi. What I'm going to say is in our world, the first high budget sci-fi is called Forbidden Planet, 50 something. The whole premise of that movie is the Araman, the other, the id, the ego, the enemy, the enemy at the gate, the other. It's about another so-called planet where this ancient civilization that was so far beyond us had the other destroy them. And the man who took over the technology, it is actually his id, a word that's out of favor, his ego that is creating the monsters in the real time. Here's another one for you. This one's way too violent. Don't let the children anywhere near it. It's called Revolver. Here's a mod more modern version of the same thing. There are two versions of Revolver, as was pointed out to me by uh, Rose, which I knew. I just didn't know it mattered so much. The shorter of the two was released in the United States and cuts out the also critical information that frames what you have just seen from a bunch of head shrinkers. You know what I mean? So get the longer of the two versions of Revolver. The UK release is longer. You can look it up online to see what you're, the whole premise of that entire movie is talking about what Steiner is introducing as the Araman. And I'm not going to go through all the things that I know it's been called all the way back to Freud and Jung, who are going to use the words ego and id. And by the way, what about that commercial? Let go of my ego. Who are they making fun of? So that is hour one of episode 325 with Jason Lindgren and Wayne McCroy. Join us for hour two at Pro 777 Radio, C-R-R-O-W radio.com. Members can get at the full. This is probably going to be two hour plus episode. And as is always true, Wayne does his homework every single time. And believe me, that's coming from a man myself who knows how hard it is to do your homework every time. There it is. I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era, and I hope to see you on the other side. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing. <laughs> 